scripture reading is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus' brief parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. On the basis of this parable, and all of Scripture, we consider Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism explaining to us the fifth petition. Lord's Day 51 asks... Which is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us. Yet, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Beloved in the Lord, having begun the second half of the Lord's Prayer with our most basic need of daily bread, Jesus now takes us to the petition right in the middle of the second half of the Lord's Prayer, petition which is the beating heart of that second half, Petition for the greatest need that we have, namely the forgiveness of our sins. In the fifth petition, Jesus teaches us to pray for this most precious of blessings. A blessing which Christ himself has earned for us through his work on the cross. And a blessing that we need applied to us by his spirit every single day. The believing child of God, when he is walking by faith with a true spiritual understanding of himself, his life, knows this to be his greatest need. We feel it. As much as we need bread, as weak, lowly creatures, the child of God hungers for something more than bread. There is a pain to him and a grief to him far greater than a hungry stomach. That pain is the guilt of sin. 
And that hunger is the hunger for righteousness and for the pardon of sins and the lifting of that crushing burden of the guilt of sin. That was the case for the child of God called the publican in Jesus' parable. A man who was a great sinner. And a man who by the grace of God had come to acknowledge that fact that he was a great sinner. And that he had nothing to offer to God. Nothing to bring to God to satisfy for his own sin. He came empty handed. He came to the temple with but one plea upon his lips. This petition. God be merciful to me a sinner. Forgive us our debts. He had that spiritual hunger created by the Holy Spirit for the satisfaction of his greatest need, forgiveness. And as the wonderful parable relates, God in his mercy answered that humble petition, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And through the gospel, Declared unto him that forgiveness his soul needed so that he went home justified. He went home justified in his conscience knowing his sins were covered. And he was right with God. We need that too. We come to church weary, burdened by our sin. Through the gospel, by the spirit of Christ. Hearing his word by faith, we too may go home justified. So we come to the fifth petition, and in treating the fifth petition, we are confronted with a couple of doctrinal questions about which much controversy has swirled of late, and of which much confusion, sadly, has arisen. And so as we come to this petition in the Lord's Prayer, we cannot avoid addressing some of these matters. And I'm going to do that in this sermon and in another on this question and answer of the catechism. And I'm going to do that out of a pastoral concern that we understand these truths aright and that confusion not prevail. A couple of important doctrinal questions that are going to come up in regard or in connection with the fifth petition. First being the question of whether there is ever a God-worked activity in man which in time precedes the reception and experience of a God-given blessing. We're going to address that question. And the next week, we're going to look more closely at the question of how does repentance, sorrow for sin, relate to forgiveness? These are important questions which we do well to address for the sake of clarity and understanding. So we're going to take up the fifth petition this morning in the first sermon, of which our theme will be, Forgive Us Our Debts. Let's start by looking at our debts. That's the first point. Secondly, we'll look at our petition concerning those debts, namely our asking God for forgiveness. And then finally, the certainty, our certainty, particularly the certainty that we have of God's positive answer to our petition. Right away, the fifth petition confronts us with the reality of our sin. Forgive us our debts, Jesus teaches us to pray. And teaching us that, he teaches us we have debts. As the catechism emphasizes, those who pray the fifth petition in true faith acknowledge themselves to be poor sinners. And in this petition, they ask God 
Impute not to us our transgressions, nor the depravity which always cleaves to us. That's the spiritual posture from which we must pray the fifth petition. That spiritual posture of the humble acknowledgement of our sins. We are poor sinners who are debtors. Sin. Defined by 1 John 3 verse 4 as the transgression of the law. God's law. To transgress is to overstep a boundary. And that's what sin is. God in his law has drawn a straight line that defines for us what righteousness is and what unrighteousness is. A straight line. And he calls us not to cross that line. And sin is the willful crossing of that line. It's disobedience. And that disobedience is an offense against the most high majesty of God. It aggrieves him in his holy being. We are transgressors, for we step over that line every single day. But those actual transgressions, the Catechism points out, come from a deeper source, namely the depravity that still cleaves to us. That is, the depravity that clings to us. Every sin has its root in our fallen, corrupt nature, our old man of sin. It's not simply that we overstep the boundaries prescribed by God's law, but it's also this, and this is the grave reality of human sin. We in our nature are twisted and out of line with God's law. Sin is not only the act, sin is embedded in the human nature. We are not only sinners, we are sinful. Yes, the born-again believer has the new life of Christ, and that is a reality. But nonetheless, we still have that sinful flesh, that depravity that always clings to us. And will not go away until that blessed day of our liberation, the day of our death, when that old man turns to dust. And so, Jesus... And the catechism in explaining Jesus' words emphasizes to us, we are transgressors, sinners, who are guilty before God, not only for our crossing of the boundaries His law prescribes, but guilty and responsible to Him for our very fallen nature. Jesus comprehends these actual transgressions and this depravity that still clings to us. He comprehends it all under the instructive term debts. And he emphasizes a particular dimension of sin. That sin indebts us to God. That that is, it incurs debt. It makes us guilty. Guilt is the liability to pay a penalty, to suffer a punishment for a transgression. The punishment prescribed by the law. And the wages of sin, as Romans 6 verse 23 tells us, is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. Separation from God, the Holy One. Sin and depravity is debt. It incurs debt. It makes us responsible to pay or suffer the penalty. Man owes debt a Man owes God a debt of perfect love. We were created to live with God in relationship, in perfect love. And we have failed that. We owe God a debt 
because of our actual sins and our depravity, our transgression against his law. And this debt is an infinite debt. It is an infinite debt because each sin is a transgression against the law of the infinite God. It is an infinite offense. As the catechism elsewhere emphasizes, this debt is utterly unpayable. All we can do, as question and answer 13 says, is daily increase our debt. And this brings to the foreground, doesn't it, that debt is misery. Debt is misery. That's what Jesus teaches us by this term as well. That sin makes us utterly miserable. Jesus would have us see how great our sins and miseries are. Anyone who has sunk deep into financial debt knows Debt is misery, it's bondage, it's a crushing burden that you carry with you everywhere you go and you can't throw it off for a moment. It robs you of peace, it robs you of joy, it grinds you down into the earth. That's what sin does. Our sin debt burdens the soul, burdens the consciousness For the child of God, it brings an awareness that we have displeased our God and Father. And there's nothing worse for a child of God than that. The awareness that our sin has displeased God. And that our sin is so heinous that it makes us liable to suffer everlasting punishment. Debt is misery. Jesus would have us see that when he teaches us to pray. Forgive us our debts. We need to take that personally. Jesus never teaches theology abstractly. He is teaching us to pray this. And to pray this, we must know the truth of this personally. With sincerity, we must utter this petition. Do we understand You and I, do we understand the true gravity of our sins? Do we see them for what they are? Part of that depravity that clings to us is our proneness to minimize our sin, to dismiss it, to excuse it. Jesus says, no. You have debts. See those debts for what they are. Can you personally relate to the publican in Jesus' parable? We must be one of the two characters in this parable. One or the other. The Pharisee or the publican. With whom do you relate? There's the Pharisee. Oh, he was a great sinner, but he didn't acknowledge it. He didn't think he had debts. In fact, he thought God was indebted to him for all of the great things he had done for God. And he goes to God in prayer. And he enumerates for God how he is so much better than that publican over there. I'm not an extortioner. I haven't done this. I fast. I give alms. He looked to all of the activities of his devotion and his religion and thought, I'm a pretty good guy. And it's so easy for us to think that way, is it not? God has given us so many good gifts. He has given us the heritage of the gospel. He has given us a congregation. He has given us the worship of the one true God. We're sitting here in church, and that's good. But do we sometimes think that these things make us better? That these things somehow give us standing with God, that we're not really poor debtors? 
mustn't think that way. When we do, we become this Pharisee. We must come to this house of prayer. We must conduct ourselves each day of our Christian life as this publican. A man who knew his sin and the gravity of his sin and the fact that none of his exercises of devotion, none of his good works, though they were gifts of God, could ever pay for his sin. Could ever be the ground upon which he could stand before the face of the holy God. And so he comes to the temple with nothing upon his lips but that petition, God be merciful to me. And you see in his very body language that humility, that understanding of his debts. He stands afar off. He doesn't raise his eyes to heaven. He smites his breast with his hand. Humility. Let us acknowledge the weight of our sin debt and see our sin for what it is. That our pride may be mortified. That we may be put upon our knees before God and make the same plea sincerely from the heart. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive us our Debts. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus teaching us to see our debts teaches us a petition, a marvelous petition to pray from that posture of humility. Forgive us our debts. Jesus teaches us to ask God for the free gift of the blessing of the forgiveness of all of our sins, our actual transgressions of his law, which we commit day by day, as well as that depravity that cleaves to our flesh. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, all of our debts. Grant me, Father, free and full remission of all of our sins. That is a wonderful petition. Let's enter into that petition now. And as we enter into it, we want to understand at the beginning what exactly we are praying for. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we are praying for forgiveness. But what is forgiveness? What does forgiveness mean? There can sometimes be confusion here. And so in order to help us have a clear understanding of what this forgiveness is, we first need to distinguish it from some related biblical concepts. Some people have, throughout history, questioned the need to pray the fifth petition, precisely because they don't make these distinctions clearly. Some have said, for example, that because salvation is finished at the cross, forgiveness is a done deal. So you shouldn't have to pray for it day by day. You shouldn't have to ask for it. After all, why would you ask for something that's yours? But this view arises from a mistake. It arises out of failure to define precisely what the forgiveness is that Jesus teaches us to pray for. It arises from a failure to distinguish forgiveness from related concepts and a failure to keep the relationship between those related concepts distinct and clear. And so for clarity's sake, here I want to distinguish forgiveness from three related biblical concepts. Atonement, 
reconciliation, and objective justification. When Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts, we are not praying for the atonement of our sins or for the satisfaction of God's justice. Atonement is payment for sin. Atonement satisfies the demands of God's justice. It bears the punishment that sin deserves and appeases God's holy wrath. And atonement was made once and for all by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That's Hebrews 10 verse 12. That's finished. Payment has been made once and for all. The sins of God's elect people are paid for, covered with the blood of Christ. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're not praying for the atonement of our sin. We're not asking God for payment to be made. That's done. That's done. We're asking for something else. We're asking for a blessing that arises out of Christ's atonement. We are asking for a blessing that Jesus has merited for us by his atoning work. We're asking for that blessing to be applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So atonement, the satisfaction of God's justice, is the basis for our forgiveness. It's the foundation upon which forgiveness rests. Atonement earned forgiveness for us, but we must not confuse those two things. Secondly, when we pray for forgiveness, we do not ask God for reconciliation. To reconcile means to restore two persons to friendship, two persons who have become separated on on account of an offense between them. And reconciliation is achieved through the removal of that offense. Our sin offended God and alienated him from us and made us his enemies. But at the cross, Christ decisively reconciled his people to God. Restored us to friendship with him so that we are not his enemies anymore. Romans 5 verse 10 teaches us that. Romans 5 verse 10, the apostle says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And the apostle is teaching there that the cross was a decisive work of God by which he reconciled us to himself. And now we abide in a state of reconciliation. That means we're not God's enemies. We're restored to his friendship. That's done. We're God's friends. We're his children. We're his heirs. That's the unchanging status of the elect believer. And that's important. When we walk in sin, we grieve God. When we walk in sin and refuse to repent, God will give us a sense of his fatherly disfavor. Make no mistake. But when we walk in sin, we don't lose our status as God's children. We don't lose our sonship, our daughterhood. We're still children. We're wayward children who must be disciplined, who must be brought back to the right way of repentance. But that state of a friend-servant of God, of an adopted son or daughter, cannot be lost. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're not asking God, reconcile me to you. Make me your friend, not your enemy. That's been accomplished. 
Thirdly, when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're not praying for justification in the objective sense. Remember, when we talk about justification, there are two primary senses in which we speak of it. There's a justification in the objective sense, which is God's once and for all verdict on the basis of Jesus' finished work in which he declares, you're forgiven and I account you as righteous in my sight. And that decisive verdict of God transfers the elect child of God from a state of guilt before him to a state of righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ that is imputed to him. But now there is also this sense of justification, the subjective sense. Namely, that God speaks to us through the gospel, day by day, declaring to us, I forgive your sins. I count you as righteous in my sight. And we need that every day. And that's what we're praying for in the fifth petition. That God would speak a word of forgiveness to us every day. But we're not asking God to make that once and for all declaration. That has been done. That is why Canons, Canons of Dort, Article, or Head 5, Article 6, Canons 5-6, says that even when the believer walks in sin and is in one of his greatest falls, he still cannot forfeit the state of justification. The Canons there teaches that our legal standing before God is secure. Secure. Our sins can't undo what Christ has done. Our sins can't put us back where we were by nature so that we're subject to the punishing wrath of God. Our sins displease our Heavenly Father and grieve Him. But we cannot forfeit that state of justification. That's a wonder of the gospel. We are covered by the blood of Christ. Those three related concepts, understanding those, and that we're not praying for those which have been accomplished decisively by Christ, we're now in a position to better understand positively what Jesus teaches us to pray for when he says, forgive us our debts. Not asking for atonement, not asking for decisive reconciliation or objective justification. We're asking for forgiveness. What is that forgiveness? Forgiveness is God's gracious word through the gospel, which he applies to the heart and conscience of the believer by the Holy Spirit. In which word he declares to you and me, I don't hold your sins against you. I don't count you as guilty in my sight. But I take your guilt away. Forgiveness is God's gracious word through the gospel applied to the heart and conscience of the believer by the Holy Spirit. In which word God declares to you and me, I don't hold your sins against you. I take your guilt away. 
This definition of repentance arises really from the main biblical words that the scriptures use for forgiveness. Starting with the word that Jesus himself uses in the fifth petition, forgive. That word literally means send away, dismiss, release. And that's what forgiveness is. God sends our guilt away. He dismisses our debt from before his eyes. He cancels it. Not that he just makes it disappear. But because it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. He sends our guilt away. He dismisses our debt. He remembers our sins no more against us. He takes them and he removes them as far from us as east is from west. He casts them into the depths of the sea. He does not bring them constantly before his divine eyes. That's forgiveness. And forgiveness is a gracious word in which God declares that to us. He says to us, I've sent your guilt away. I've dismissed your debts. I've released you from those bonds of guilt. This concept is further fleshed out when we look at the main Old Testament word for forgiveness, which is used, for example, in in David's words in Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven in Psalm 32, verse 1, means to lift up and carry away. And there's another beautiful idea. Our sin is debt. It's a crushing burden that weighs down upon us. We feel that, don't we? And when God speaks to us through the gospel, by his spirit, as he applies that word of the gospel to our hearts, he lifts that burden off our souls and he carries it away. We could never do that ourselves. It's too heavy a burden. We can't lift it. We can't cast it off. But God does. For Jesus' sake, lifts, carries it away so that we bear it no more. These two ideas are all comprehended under the the term that the catechism uses when it says, impute not to us poor sinners our transgressions. Impute is a legal term meaning to reckon to someone's account, to lay to their charge. When God dismisses our debts, sends away our guilt, lifts the burden and carries it away, he does not impute our transgressions to us. That's forgiveness. And now let's go back to that definition. This marvelous act of God's grace. He accomplishes by means of his word. And through the operation of the Holy Spirit. It is the word that communicates to you and me. This blessing. Which is based upon the cross. It is the word of the gospel that says to you and me. And in this word of the gospel, we hear the very voice of God. The good shepherd speaks to his sheep and he says, I forgive your sins. That guilt that weighs on your conscience right now as you think about your sins this past week and the besetting sins that you struggle with. My word sends it away. Dismisses it out of my presence. I lift that burden and I carry it away so that you do not have to bear it any 
more. And I do this because your debt is paid for by Christ. Look at the cross. That's how I can do this. I don't hold your sin against you. Son, daughter, I don't view you day by day, moment by moment, in light of all of your transgressions against me, but I view you in light of what Christ has done for you. God speaks that word to us powerfully through the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit then that takes that word and applies it to our heart. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us so that by faith we receive that word, we hear it, we believe it, and we rest in that word. That's why we say we experience the forgiveness of our sins by faith alone. It's by the hearing of faith. The hearing of faith which hears the word of forgiveness in the gospel and receives it. That's how we know and experience the forgiveness of sins. The ears of faith given us by the Holy Spirit are the only ears that can hear the good shepherd's voice. The ears of faith know that voice in the gospel. Do you hear that voice this morning, beloved? Coming to you in the gospel? Coming to you from Jesus Christ himself as he teaches you to pray this petition? Jesus himself says, my people, your sins are forgiven. And so that answers the question, when does God grant forgiveness? The forgiveness that Jesus teaches us to pray for is a forgiveness that God grants in time. A forgiveness that God grants over and over to us. Yes, forgiveness has its origin in eternity. God decreed in eternity that he would forgive the sins of his people for the sake of the death of Jesus Christ. But now, God's eternal decree must be executed in time. And that's what we are asking for in the fifth petition. For the forgiveness that God has decreed to us. For the forgiveness Christ has earned for us. For that to be executed in time and be granted to us by the work of the Spirit and through the gospel. It's a work of God in time. To put it another way, forgiveness is one of the infallible fruits of election earned and obtained for us at the cross, which is now daily applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We need that. That's the mistake of those who say, forgiveness is a one-time thing. It just happened at the cross and it's done. And so you really don't have to pray for it. Not only do they contradict the very teaching of Jesus, but they don't understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a daily declaration of God to us in the gospel that we need. We need it every day. Why? Because day by day, over and over, you're sinning and I'm sinning. Day by day, over and over, We are incurring to ourselves a sense of guilt. And we need to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd day by day, over and over. I forgive. Those sins of today, I pardon for the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that daily word of forgiveness that unburdens and relieves the soul. 
That's the daily justification by faith. There's objective justification, that once and for all declaration of God. But we need to hear that verdict declared to us every day through the gospel. You're righteous in Christ. Your sins are pardoned. That's what we're praying for in the fifth petition. The fifth petition does not in any way imply imperfection in Christ's work. Rather, the fifth petition is based upon the perfection of Christ's work. And the fifth petition is the humble plea for the application of the chief blessing earned for us by Christ's work. Praying the fifth petition then is part of walking with God. It's part of living in covenant fellowship with God. We're daily sinning against our Father and covenant friend sovereign. And part of our life with Him then is daily bending the knee and confessing our sins and seeking His forgiveness for our sins. He's redeemed us. But we're still sitters who grieve Him and incur guilt. We feel that. And so we need that word of forgiveness every single day. And we need to pray for it every single day. Day. That's the petition, the fifth petition. It's here that Jesus' teaching requires addressing a matter of controversy around which much confusion has been swirling. And this is the question Is there ever a God worked activity in man? which God causes in time to precede the reception and experience of a God-given blessing? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. And that is a biblical and thoroughly reformed answer. It has been charged by some that to teach this is conditional theology. And it is asserted by some that never is there a God-worked activity in man which precedes the reception and experience of a God-given blessing. That's wrong. That's mistaken. And I want to prove this now for the sake of clarity from Scripture. And I want to start by pointing out, first of all, that the very concept of petitionary prayer demonstrates that there are God-worked activities in man, which according to God's own design, precede the reception and experience of a God-given blessing. A petitionary prayer is by definition followed by its answer. Thus in Psalm 86 verse 7, the psalmist says, In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. God is the God who hears and answers prayer. And the answer to that prayer must follow the hearing of that prayer. Yes, God knows our prayers before we pray them. And indeed, every single prayer that we pray has been worked in us by the Holy Spirit. God has ordained our prayers. He has given the prayers that we pray to us as a gift. But that that truth in no way denies 
the reality that his answer in time follows the making of that prayer. In fact, the truth of God's foreordination of our prayers establishes this fact. God is not only the God who ordained the prayer and ordained the answer, but he ordained the sequence of those things. The prayer and then the answer. The explanation isn't man. The explanation is God and his good pleasure. So to demonstrate this point further, let's consider a couple of biblical examples. First, the familiar history in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah, who so desperately wanted the gift of a son, who prays earnestly for a son, such that in 1 Samuel 1 verse 10, we find Hannah in the tabernacle in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. We know what happened next. Eli first thought she was drunk and Hannah explained the earnest petition and Eli then dismisses her with his blessing. And the next day, Hannah worships in the tabernacle and then she goes home. And in 1 Samuel 1 verse 19, we read, and the Lord remembered her. And then in verse 20, wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about After Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Let's look at this history. What is the plain teaching of Scripture? Did the God-given answer, the gift of Samuel, precede in time the prayer of Hannah for Samuel? No. The God-worked activity in Hannah, the petitionary prayer, preceded in time her reception of the God-given blessing of Samuel. And that by divine design. Does that make Hannah's prayer a condition? So that God's gift depended on her prayer? Absolutely not. Does that mean God had to wait helplessly for Hannah to ask for a son before he would give her Samuel? Absolutely not. Is this a theology of man designed to glorify man and take glory from God? Absolutely not. No, this is all God. This is God's ordained way. He does it this way because he wants to. God ordained it all. He ordained he would give Hannah a son. But God's good pleasure was that Hannah would feel in her heart the great need that she had and her dependence upon God, that there was no other recourse, nowhere else to go for the gift of this son. And so God ordained that she would make this earnest petitionary prayer and that then God would show his faithfulness and his love and his care by answering that prayer in his good timing. There's no conditions here. This is the way God works. And he's wise to work this way because in this way he impresses upon us our need for him. And the glory of his free gift then is received with all the more wonder 
after we have experienced our deep need and utter dependence on him. The God-worked activity of Hannah's prayer preceded in time her reception of the gift of Samuel, not conditional, God's ordained way. To bring it, bring it home closer to the subject of the sermon, the forgiveness of sins, we go back to the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And we see the same thing here. The publican's prayer was a gift of God. God worked it in the publican by his grace. So that he cried, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God answered that prayer. And God answered it through the gospel that was pictured there in the temple, at the altar, the sacrifice which pictured the atonement of Christ. The Spirit worked faith in the publican's heart so that as he saw that sacrifice, it was a means of grace to him. He saw Christ and he rested in Christ by faith and he went home justified. Did the publican come to the temple justified and go home praying, God be merciful to me, a sinner? No. He came to the temple He prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he went home justified. The God-worked activity of that prayer preceded in time his reception and experience of the blessing. Conditional? No. God's way? God's wise and good way? Yes. Yes. I realize I'm belaboring this point, and the reason I'm belaboring it is that it's important. There's been so much confusion here. And it's important because this is about God's glory. That's what it's about. It's about submitting our theology to the word of God. This is not about keeping something for man or glorifying man. This is about God and his glory. God has revealed in his word how he is pleased to glorify himself. We must submit to his word and not tell him the best way to glorify himself. God has been pleased to reveal in his word that he is a God who graciously saves his people in Jesus Christ. He is pleased to glorify himself by accomplishing a unilateral salvation. A salvation that is absolutely unconditional from beginning to end. He is pleased to accomplish such a salvation. But he is so wise and good that he is pleased to sovereignly and unconditionally save us in such a way that he makes us conscious and active. Not because he needs us to be, but because he wants us to be. That's the covenant. Salvation is covenantal, which means it's relational. And for there to be a relationship, we as God's children need to be conscious of his fatherhood, and our sonship, and our daughterhood. Salvation is a living thing. It doesn't depend on us. It's not conditioned upon anything we do. But as God saves us, he makes us active. He draws from us prayers of praise, and petition, and love, and confession, because he delights in that. And he hears those prayers, and he answers those prayers. Not because he has to wait for us to pray, but because he wants us to pray and he wants to hear those prayers and he wants to show us his goodness in the answer to those prayers. 
Every particle of salvation is a gift of grace. Every particle of salvation is a fruit of election. Every particle of salvation comes to us in God's own ordained way. And so, it's important to see that there are God-worked activities in man which precede in time the reception, the experience of a God-given blessing. That's why prayer precedes the answer. God wants his children to ask. God delights and is glorified when our spirit-directed eyes of faith turn and fix themselves upon him and wait upon him for the answer, trusting in his grace, trusting in his glory. No Christian says, I prayed, and I know that on the basis of my prayer, God's going to answer. No Christian prays and says, I fulfilled a condition, and now I know God will answer me. No, no. We turn our spirit-directed eyes to God. We wait upon him. This glorifies God. That's also why the petition, forgive us our debts, precedes in time the reception of that declaration of forgiveness. God wants it that way. He wants us to know our need. He wants us to feel the weight of our debt so that we don't turn to any other for salvation, but we turn to him. And we cry out with the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then God is pleased to speak the word of the gospel into our darkness, into our sorrow, into our helplessness. I forgive you, my son, my daughter. Not because you prayed, not because you did something, but because I am good and gracious and because of Christ. Now go home, justified. That's God's way. It's not conditional. It's biblical. It's covenantal. This is election theology. This is the Reformed faith. This glorifies God. We've just gone through a bunch of theology that arises in connection with the fifth petition. Theology that's important to understand and important for understanding the fifth petition aright, but there's more than just understanding it. There's living it. Doctrine is never just for the head, it's for the heart. And Doctrine is given to us to transform our lives after the image of Christ that we may live henceforth unto him. And so now let's come back from that lengthy theological detour to address an important subject of controversy. Let's come back and apply this doctrine. Do we acknowledge and confess personally our need for forgiveness? Jesus teaches us that. To confess our sins not only in general, but in particular, specific, concrete sins. Because our souls and our consciences aren't just burdened by sin in general, they're burdened by those specific sins. Husband, when you lost your temper with your wife. Wife, when you gave your husband a cold shoulder. Child, when you disobeyed father or mother willfully. Student, When you gossiped behind your classmates' back, already in the first week of school, young man, when you lusted after that image on the computer screen, on and on, those specific sins, 
That's what weighs upon us. That's what can crush us. And that's what we need forgiveness for. And that's where the gospel comes to us. God says to us, that angry outburst, that cold shoulder, that gossip, that disobedience to parents, that lustful look, it's paid for by Christ. I forgive, graciously forgive my child. I pardon. I don't look at you in light of that. I don't view you as an angry man, as a cold woman, as a gossiping young man or young woman, as an adulterer. I view you as my son, my daughter, whom I love. I forgive you. That's the word of the gospel. Don't we rest in that? The greatness of God's grace. Our sins are great, but God's grace is way greater. Way greater. No sin is too much. Too great. Too severe. Too oft committed. To be covered by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. There's the comfort of this petition. Jesus says, confess your sin. Seek forgiveness and you will find in the God that you pray to. A God who will abundantly pardon Knowing that forgiveness then, we have renewed eagerness. I'm going to change the way I live. I'm going to fight against that sin. I'm going to show my gratitude. That's the happiness of man. Belgic Confession calls the forgiveness of sins man's happiness. And David called it that too. Blessed is the man whose transgressions is forgiven. Who knows his sins are forgiven. Rest in that gospel truth, beloved. So we come to the certainty. Forgive us our debts is a petition we pray with certainty. Indeed, with absolute certainty of its positive answer. We have absolute certainty of its positive answer, not because we pray. Not because we think prayer is a condition. We have absolute certainty because, as the catechism says, Christ. Notice where the catechism begins. Be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood. There's the ground. There's the foundation. There's the cause. There's the certainty. Christ died for his people. He shed his precious blood. And that blood has blotted out the handwriting of our sins which was against us. That blood has atoned and paid for those sins so that the wrath of the holy God, which otherwise should have burned against us, has been appeased. So that there is no more wrath. For those who are in Christ. The certainty is Christ. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. When we pray the fifth petition. Remember. We're asking God to grant us. Mercifully. Something Christ has already earned and obtained for us. God is faithful. He's faithful first of all to his only begotten son. And just as well, he will not deny what Christ has earned for us. He is faithful and just to forgive. 
There's the assured confidence of faith. Remember how we've talked about faith in the course of this round of catechism sermons on the Lord's Prayer, that faith, or rather that prayer is faith talking. Prayer is faith talking. The fifth petition is faith in Christ talking. It's an expression of our complete withdrawal of trust from anything else and our complete reliance and rest in Christ alone. That's what the fifth petition is. So be certain. Jesus himself said, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to him as the publican came. Come as you have to the house of prayer this day. Bring the burdens of your guilt, the burden of your sin. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And hear Jesus' words to you, believing sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. That's God's word to you this morning too. You go to your house justified. With peace, with joy, your chains loosened your debts dismissed, your hearts comforted. For the sake of his blood alone. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the instruction of the fifth petition. We pray that all of the theology and the doctrine that has been explained in connection with it may not simply laden our minds but that it may enter into our hearts and guide us in our life. Be merciful to us, poor sinners. Grant us that forgiveness we stand in need of daily and give us the confidence of knowing that it is ours only for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.